Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, right, welcome back to the next episode of the Keto Naturopath, and I'm Dr. Carl Goldcamp. Today we're going to talk about something pretty big and broad, but bring it down to really three things that you can do for yourself. And I hope you believe it, and I hope you do it, and I hope you change the world. I hope you start with yourself first. Done. That's my objective here. And so what we're going to talk about is, uh, we touched on it when we talked about glutathione, and I will come back to glutathione because that's going to be part of this particular presentation. And that is, we are going to talk about the rise of chronic disease, which has was 7.5% in 1935, and in 2020, it is 60% of the population in the United States has one chronic disease, and 40% have two or more chronic diseases. That's all age groups. And then when you start to rise it, raise the age category, let's say start at retired, what we consider retired, 65 years old, my age, and older, you find that it is 88% of that age group, 65 and older, have one chronic disease. How I hate fitting into that group, and I don't. And you don't have to either. And then it goes on more and more and more, as you can guess. And the similar rises, the rise is similar in other countries, but not as terrible as ours. And so that reference that I just gave you is actually from the CDC. So it's pretty conservative. If anything, it's understated. But the 60% of the whole population, that's kids that were just born two minutes ago, and that's those in their 90, perhaps on their last week in life. So it's a huge, broad um, containment of people by gender and all their issues. And to have that, that's amazing. So what has happened in that 70 years, roughly? My belief is when I... um, I did a presentation on YouTube and I sort of showed other diseases that kind of you could put a yardstick at the same angle from that rise of 35 to 60 over 70 years, put that next to type 1, uh, sorry, type 2 diabetes, obesity, uh, Alzheimer's, and so on. They all had the same kind of very close inflection over that period of time. So I see 
it not being as something so generalized, well, we polluted the world. That's when oil started, whatever your favorite thing is. That's when heavy metals started getting in the air because of the coal burning plants. That's when, you know, phthalates came on. And that's when all those things are contributory. Would they drive in unison nearly all these different chronic diseases? I don't think so. I think that that unison increase, unison increase, uniform increase nearly of different diseases over that period of time is really about how we eat. And that was the beginning of the processed food generation pre-World War II and certainly post-World War II and the whole industrialization of our food supply. You can even boil that down to it probably has to do with two things. I was about to say seed oils, and that's usually the culprit that people point to, at least the people that I know and listen to and so on and so forth. We all kind of think alike at this point, huh? That uh, it is seed oil, so that's your high omega-6, and we know the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio is anywhere from 15 to 20 to 1, and it used to be 1 to 1, uh, but 100 to 150 years ago, and then back in perpetuity back to all the time we were amoebas, right? So that's been a huge change. And, you know, it's just, if that was a ski jump, it would be too steep to, to ski up over. If you were coming down a slope and suddenly there's a angle that deep, that steep, um, you go, something's wrong. What happened here? Something is wrong. And what did happen here? So I think that is it primarily. But it's the other aspect. It's not just the seed oils. It's the subtraction of all the nutrients that you would have found in complex carbohydrates, in range-fed, cattle-driven, rawhide-driven cattle. You know, they were real food. And those days are over. And so, yes, you can get grass-fed beef and you can get fish, good fish, Alaskan wild-caught salmon. You have to look for it. And it's getting to be uh, somewhat esoteric. That is, it doesn't, it's not in everybody's grocery store. It's amazing that those things are available, though, if you should you look. But the, you know, the pork has fed a lot of seed oils and the chickens fed, fed a lot of seed oils and so on. So that's part of it. But mostly it's that you have the incessant and ubiquitous abundance of processed food and let's say Doritos. They don't have a vitamin, a cofactor, anything in there. They have calories and they're high in omega-6 linoleic acid, linoleic acid. And um, that's in essence what most of what people eat. They eat crunchy food devoid of nutrition, vitamins, water-soluble and fat-soluble, and high in omega-6. So if you fed, we're right up there with the geese and the ducks and the caged chickens, whatever, that we are fed pretty much the same stuff that they have, meaning that they are fed the seeds. Okay, we get crackers, we get the cereals, we get the cookies, we get the flowers. You know, so it's it's pretty straightforward. Anyways, the, the data is there, so that's not to be questioned, and I can go on and on, but I it titled this whole sort of review of this situation as if the prevalence of chronic disease in the U.S. was an iceberg, it's a metaphor, then we are the Titanic. We are tanking ourselves and we are sinking. And it's it's such a big issue, nobody wants to start talking about it. And we, we the United States has turned into a fear-driven 
population that's that's separated itself has so much hate for each other and so much fear on whatever some of it's justified for sure that to add this would just either create a revolt revolt or just numb everybody up to complete apathy and say that's it i'm done and that's not a good place to make health decisions from but it is a reality and i do believe you can turn back this reality really pretty quickly by just three things and uh, these three things you've heard pretty much about one is and i'm not going to it's not going to be a secret there's not going to be a denouement and i'm going to build it up and pop it in front of you no the three steps are pretty straightforward and i want you to think about them as being straightforward as having condiments on your dinner table should you have dinner together anymore you know what is a salt and pepper or it's basic stuff well step one would be is to yes work on getting your omega-6-3 ratio in order so what do you do you go get a test for 35 to 50 dollars we've talked about that it's called the omega panel you find out your ratio you also find out in that panel a part of it is called the omega-3 index which simply means it's your total amount of omega-3s that they found in your red blood cells as a fat percentage that's a good thing to know because there's research based on both and both of those pieces are necessary to know so this is such a wonderful test, and I'll be talking to Dr. Simopoulos, uh, Artemis Simopoulos in uh, a couple of weeks. She agreed to a podcast. And our understanding that issue is completely due to her. She has been the voice crying in the wilderness for the last 70 years. She was a witness to the, to the fraudulent studies that were done in the United States, the Minnesota... Um, sorry, the Minnesota Coronary Heart Study and the one done in uh, Sydney, Australia called the Sydney Diet Heart Health Study. And they were both done in the mid-70s and they both came with the same conclusion of you need to up the polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are the corn oils and the soy oils. And the we, we put in canola there. Uh, canola is kind of the poor man's uh, olive oil. It's uh, higher in, in oleic acid my beef with canola is it was never used historically in this context because it's a it's a new it came from canada during world war ii when they needed a oil lubricant and that's where canola oil came from it's part of the mustard family by the way as a plant and the way it's processed is very um contaminant prone and highly ox it oxidizes very quickly when it's cooked and most of your food at most restaurants are cooked in canola oil Maybe maybe corn oil, maybe soy, soy, soy oil, but it's more than likely canola oil. So, hope you knew that. All right, anyway, so that's the stuff that we're getting. And so, you need to change that. You need to, if this is new to you, you need to think about real food not protein shakes, not the, not these particular supplements. I, I do support supplements in situations that it's appropriate, but not to have supplements in lieu of food. If you're doing supplements in lieu of food and you think you're a biohacker, how cool is that? You're a biohacker because you're smarter than everybody else. I think you're stupider than everybody else, frankly. I think you're misusing the information that's out there and you're getting yourself in deep trouble. And that's what I've seen over the 20 plus years that I've practiced. People who are so supplement oriented and don't have time for making a meal and all this other stuff, 
they have really put themselves into hormonal problems if you're a woman, certainly men too, but um, and a number of other issues. So that's my attitude, that's my prejudice, that's my belief garnered out of experience, not just a, a glib little conversation with, with somebody. So you need to look at whole foods. And uh, you know I'm a lab guy, so I do believe in supplements relative to your lab results. When you just go, and I get these questions all the time, well, how much omega-3 should I take? I don't know. I haven't seen your labs. I don't know what your lifestyle is like. I don't even know what you're eating. Oh, I'll, you know, it, this, if I take this, it will be better for me, won't it? Am I, am I not? I don't know. Who are you? Can I see your labs? What do you eat? No, they don't want to tell me that. See, got too complicated too quickly. That's where 95% of most people are, by the way. Um, they'll go find somebody else. We'll give them another answer. Like, yeah, absolutely. Take more. Um, not sure. Uh, by the way, I'm big on fish oil, but I'm big on fish oil in the appropriate place with the appropriate context. You don't treat your car that way, right? You don't just start, I think I'll change front tire because I heard front tires need to be changed. Well, how about your car? <laughs> you know, how about the carburetor and the lubricant and the rocker arm covers and the cylinder rings and so on and so forth? Um, it's ignorant in that context and it's ignorant in your context, but you can get a lab and you find out, oh my gosh, these are my ratios. After the ratios, you go, what do I do to adjust it? You try to identify the foods. Most likely it's going to be the processed foods that make you very high in omega-6. And so Judy and myself have been working on the same thing. So it's not like we're like this perfect little iconic couple that have great labs. No, we came from a terrible situation that made us buck up and stop believing everybody who thinks they're good at something and find out our own information for ourselves. And so when we come to look at this information now ourselves and working on it, yes, um, we just had a lab a couple of weeks ago and our labs were, uh, my ratios were, were, are down to five to one. I think it was five point, I think I'm five point, one and she's 5.321. So, I mean, that's pretty good, but there's still work to do. It's not 15 and it's not 20. And you're obviously that's not a surprise to us because we've been pretty darn, or pretty darn hard to make a change in our lives to change our health. So that's been done. And so our omega-3 component of that, remember the omega-3 index is up about seven. And, um, that's good, but that can be improved as well. So we check in, we'll do another one in three months, and then we'll just work on it until we find out what is the recipe. My my, my feeling is, obviously it's not processed food as the source. We're getting down to the rock bottom of the, and we're just being normal. We're not being esoteric here. We have, um, we have pork and we have a lot of egg yolks, a lot of eggs. And so the egg yolks of caged chickens, even though we try to get omega-3 and whatever is available in the grocery store, we're doing it like everybody else is doing it. Uh, my guess is it's still pretty high. So these five to one ratios we're getting, it's probably a five to one in the egg yolk and it's probably a five to one due to the pork. At this point, you know, now that we're a little more aware of that, I don't think I'll be change swapping out fewer egg yolks. I mean, I'll be finding it, we'll be finding a better quality as we look around and then check that. Uh, the perhaps a better quality of pork as well, but we're down to the core of it's got to be these these two things and nothing else. And yes, fish oil will help balance that. But we did the first part, which is the work of what are the sources, you know, getting rid of all the processed food. 
So in terms of getting down chronic diseases down from 60%, balance that. Balance, work at balancing, you can do it. It's one, two, three, get the labs, identify, find your sources, reduce your sources or eliminate them and progress. And within a year you can be there is my feelings. Okay, the next thing is, yes, you do have to look at your glutathione. They kind of go together, and I've talked about that in the um, the previous podcast, is that, you know, glutathione is your main, if not only, anti-inflammatory in your entire body. And so the things that you do to consume it are the things that you do to create a thing called oxidative stress. So if you have elevated oxidative stress, which can come from emotional stress, right? That's such a cortisol-inspired stress, of course. But other stresses would be um, obviously eating uh, high omega-6 foods. That's very pro-inflammatory. So if you can minimize your oxidative stress by dropping your omega-6, by dropping your uh, inflammatory markers, prostaglandins, you'll be way ahead of the game. You'll not be consuming as much glutathione and therefore you will not need to have as much glutathione. That's a good thing. So those are two things and they're very coupled. You could also say, well, you know, I have environmental exposures. Clearly that would be unique to you. I mean, what depending on what they are and how much and so on. Uh, there are other reasons to have oxidative stress. But, and another way of getting up your, uh, speaking of stress and Energy, I mean, working out, exercise is a kind of stress, but it's a good stress and actually increases your glutathione. And there's a couple of things that actually do that. So you've you've endured, forced yourself consciously to have a momentary stress, and therefore your body has really upregulated to make more glutathione for you to handle that. And so when you do that a little by little, overall your glutathione levels stay elevated. That's why exercise is important. And this Reference to exercise, by the way, it's pretty well documented. It's this is ne- is not necessarily HIT. It's basically go out and give yourself a walk, or if you're going to do aerobics, or go online and I mean go into the gym and do elliptical or whatever your thing is or your running machine. That's fine. Do something half hour, five days a week. I believe we do about that. We do hit twice a week, then another weight workout day in the middle of the week, and then. Two days a week, we do HIIT at home from videos uh, on the living room floor. And they're hard. So that's about a half hour session. Um, So that's how we line it up. And it's working well for us. But it has to be part of your formula. That, by the way, goes into the glutathione idea. So first, you're addressing your omega-6. Second, you're addressing your glutathione. And yeah, you can do that by various supplements. Start with the... Well, start with your diet. So your diet... And there's no such thing as high glutathione foods that you can have. So even if there were high glutathione foods, you break it down and it doesn't make it into your body. So stop that nonsense. Um, but you can use basically what they call high sulfur foods. And what you're looking for there are high cysteine right, foods because glycine, cysteine, and glutamine are the three amino acids that make up glutathione. So cysteine is the rate limiting one and therefore it could be a diet limiting one as well. So anyway, you have your garlic, you have your onions, you have your um, a ginger. This is fresh ginger uh, or any kind of ginger. So those three are key. You then to that, you have curcumin and turmeric and then you have some rosemary. These now we're getting to spices, right? Nobody just eats a turmeric. Nobody eats a curcumin, uh, but they're in your food. Think of uh, Indian food, if you will. And... Um, 
After that, you can say, what is the, people talk about things like the cruciferous vegetables. Cruciferous, catch that word, cross, cruciferous. Cruciferous means the flower is a cross flower. It's a mustard seed. So mustard seeds have a cross in the flower. That's why they're called cruciferous. Hope you appreciate that. And, um, but primarily we're talking about broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, and broccoli rabi. But Brussels sprouts are the hardcore highest concentration of cysteine of that family. However, and it has a thing called sephoraphane, you will need to eat, you will need to eat probably 14 truckloads of Brussels sprouts to get enough sephoraphane to make a difference in your health. So that brings you into the supplementing side. Sephoraphane I had used probably for the first 10 years of my practice. It certainly has been around since the 90s and uh, it was helpful. It, uh, you know, I don't know what I was looking for, but having an improvement on people's situation, but it's become the kind of uh, supplement du jour in the last oh, six months or so. I know uh, Rhonda Patrick did a review on that and that's good. It's it's out there. It's it's as good as it is. I You know, it's one of those things, take it if that's what you want to do and make it part of your life. If that's what you want to do, I have nothing bad to say about it. It just wasn't my favorite. Um, I would do N-acetylcysteine because it provided a lot of other aspects as well. If some people had a problem with NAC, then I would look for things like sephoraphane. Okay, so beyond that, so you have the sephoraphane NAC sort of approach, which is your body's going to take those in and they're going to make it into glutathione. Then you actually go directly to glutathione supplements like liposomal, like reduced, like uh, acetyl um, glutathione. And uh, these are products, except for reduced, these are products that really didn't even exist 10 years ago. So in my view, they are small miracles in the sense that um, you can take glutathione, it will be in your bloodstream within 10 or 15 minutes. And uh, that's very impressive because if you think of all the diseases that are associated with diminished glutathione on a per specific area of the body, like nerves, you have Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, MS, ALS, you name it. So for that, they would could use a regular supply of glutathione. Yes, you can get it IV, and yes, you can get it by um, inhaled. Um, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically, it's a um, nasal uh, glutathione that you can breathe in, kind of one of those things you can put around your head, your note, your, like they do for oxygen and so on. So those are all helpful. I think the top, and they are much more expensive too. So your IV is great. That doesn't last long though. Your liposomal and your acetyl are probably some of your most expensive and also definitely your most efficient. So if you gave this to somebody who was from a family that had a history of Parkinson's and they already had their tremor starting and they had this supplement, the liposomal or the acetyl, perhaps even the NAC or the sephoraphane, but they took having to support their level of glutathione on a regular basis, you probably make a big difference in their life. I want to say that I'm not for just randomly taking supplements without knowing one's genomic predisposition. Sounds like a fancy word. Yes, it does have something to do with epigenetics, but the way I look at it is that um, I'm looking for the problem areas, the known problem areas that have great documentation and they can be supported. And so if you look at all of methylation, all these inter linking cycles from your neurotransmitter cycle 
bioptarin cycle, folic acid, methylation, transsulfuration, put them all together. What is it really? I call that the glutathione factory. So there's a lot of ways that you can have a very slow glutathione factory that you can improve upon by plugging in some of the deficiencies. Actually, it's not quite that black and white, but it's pretty black and white. You find out where the deficiencies are and you can orient that person to supplementing it via maybe even by foods, depending on what that is. So a big one is in the methylation loop. And that does have to do with folic acid and B12. And it's producing a thing called a methyl group. Now, methyl groups are famous because of methylation, duh. But it, this little methyl group, consider it like a piece of flypaper. And it goes around and it sticks to some genes to turn them off. If you methylate it, you turn them off. And then when they're not methylated, the genes are turned on to act. You know, that's why you don't grow teeth in your toes and you don't have an ear in your belly button because certain genes are turned off and other genes are turned off on various locations. How do you get that specificity per location? That's how you do it. So when the process of methylation gets a, a skew, and as we get older, this whole thing of age reversal, by the way, in this thing called Horvath's clock, Horvath's clock sort of looks at you and it's a fancy test and you can only get it done like at Yale and a few other places. So it's nothing you're going to get done in your doctor's office, but it actually tabulates up, you know, what of these known things that should be methylated are methylated and what they're generally aren't methylated, you know, are not methylated. What they find as people age generally is that they lose the ability to be a good methylator. So consequently more genes are turned on that don't have to be, shouldn't be turned on, like some of their, it's called cancer genes and so on and so forth. So it gets progressively worse because they can't keep them capped. And methylation is kind of like a cap. They're capped off, if you will. Okay, so there's that. Um, but the methylation in the genome that I'm talking about is about looking at the factory, the gene, the glutathione factory, and saying, you know, we can fortify, we can supplement and make this a better glutathione factory for you with these other things that are also important for so many other different operations, by the way. So we look at those things and then that helps us to know how important is glutathione. Glutathione is also a test you can have done for yourself. And uh, that hasn't always been the case. It's now uh, both the LabCorp and Quest do have that um, and I think that's pretty neat. So I haven't taken glutathione up until recently as a test. And that's a fun thing to look at. You also can do an inflammatory marker, which is your C-reactor protein. So you put these things together to say, how do you, as you get older, control your level of inflammation? That's what glutathione is. It is the fireman that you want in every room in your house. You want it in every national park and up in the tower so you don't have huge forest fires like we've had out west on the west coast, both Canada and the United States this year. It was, it wasn't lack of for, it wasn't, it was, we didn't have enough firefighters if you want to look at it that way. As, as colossal as that situation is, um, for that particular need, we didn't have as, as many firefighters as we needed, as we could have or should have had. But we also had a very dry situation. So a dry situation is the analogy to not having enough glutathione on hand. Okay, so we got, get get your omega-3s paired up, your omega-3 and 6 paired up, one-to-one -one ratio, take care of your glutathione, 
get that up and running. It's a big deal. There's a lot of documentation on how that makes a big difference as you get older. And the third thing really is you have to, you really do have to look at some form of the ketogenic diet. So it used to be called low carb, high fat. Um, most people do start that way because it forces them to, and this is how the classic ketogenic diet was done from Russell Wilder and Dr. Penniman back in 1925 and going further, they really high fatted it to kind of make sure neurologically, because they were treating epilepsy, right? Epilepsy had heretofore only been able to be treated by pretty stringent fasting, three weeks of total fasting. It's like that gets kind of old after a while and maybe not healthy if you're really young. So that's where the ketogenic diet came in. Hey, we can eat. And in the ketogenic diet uh, that is still prescribed, it's trying to make sure they get enough protein, you know, enough protein and, and fat. So, but for the average person who's not epileptic to start with dropping their carbs and to the last, the second part of that would be, but dropping the carbs is most important. Dropping the carbs. I drop, I really don't have any carbs. Um, but you start with under 20. And that's a classic um, 20 grams of carbohydrates per day. And somebody can say, well, I've heard Dr. Hoosie Watson said 50 is fine. You know, it really depends to, on you. Some people really have to be more restrictive with their carbohydrates than others. And when we talk about carbs, we talk about total carbs, not like net carbs. Net carbs is a felonious, <laughs> fraudulent reference for marketing so that you eat, you can have more carbs thinking you're having fewer carbs. So it's total carbs. But you have to think of it, it clearly is a huge issue. You start dropping that, not only you drop weight if that's your concern, but you drop a lot of the inflammation that is derived from the processed foods. And there's ancillary issues that are attached to the idea of carbohydrates, things like oxalates that go off to, to uh, kidney stones and other problems. And I believe, I haven't been on, because I dropped my carbs, veggies that we grew annually. Um, I see oxalates as little pieces of fiberglass in your food that just gradually scratch and, and, and cut your gut meal after meal after meal even if you think you're just having salads. And some foods are higher in oxalates than others, like spinach and kale and almonds and um, can't think of anything that's off the top of my head. So those are, those are concerns by dropping the carbs to under 20 total carbs per day. And, you, and you, what you have to do is be pretty mechanistic about this. You go on to something like chronometer and you go, all right, what did I have today? And you learn how to drop it. You know, and you... Uh, I mentioned about protein. You really do need to have enough protein. We would set it generally at one and a half grams per protein per kilogram of ideal body weight. We've talked about that before. Um, right now in my life, I've gone as high as 2.8 grams of protein per ideal body weight. Usually not that high. It's usually around two, two, one, two, two. But I did measure it one day. Made a video that as well. It kind of surprised me, but we got up the, it was 2.8, both for my wife and myself, which is fine. It's the higher end of what has been documented to be okay. All right. Um, so those are the three things and you can do these three things. Some people go, well, it's too much change. Well, you're right. It might be too much for you. It was too much for me 
until I had a crisis. And then you go, I got to start looking a little more deeply of this. And uh, let me tell you, I feel there is certainly a lot of medical bullshit out there. And I think there was a lot of naturopathic bullshit out there too. So you had to sort of regroup and saying, what is true for me? And I've learned my own truths. They're not that individualistic, by the way. They can be applied to mostly other people, but you have to do the work to just that chronometer tracking of your macros. That's a big deal. Most people don't want to do that. And they go, oh, I've been doing keto. Yeah. Or what's keto? I don't know. I've been dropping the carbs and it ends up being a rather useless conversation with somebody like that. They can't tell you what they're doing because they've never tracked it. And they don't like being asked questions about things they don't know answers to. Oh, well. So that's the core of it. So I don't know what age you are or what your goal is in listening to this particular podcast. But let me tell you, if you want to be a healthy... I already have friends that have had strokes. My sister had a stroke at 39. I had a friend who had a stroke just two years ago. They are permanently impaired. Permanently impaired. So for my sister, who who did come back a good deal, but she still limps on, has a tightness on her uh, right side, so she kind of limps when we go out for a, a walk and so on, and it's and her voice pattern changed a lot. Um, she's considerable a high functioning post stroke uh, person, but the person who had a stroke two years ago, he's forever in, uh, nearly forever in a. Uh, nursing home. He doesn't call it a nursing home. It's for therapy and he goes home and so on. But it's, it's, that's it. Things aren't going to be better after two years. Things are not getting better. Maybe operation here and there will make him more comfortable, but that's it. His life has been permanently changed and there is things that he clearly could have done. Maybe he had a predisposition for bad genes, but none of that was looked into and he could have avoided this. It would have taken a little work, but it's taken work for me as well. And I'm quite fine. I don't think I have any complaints. Okay, so that was, if the prevalence of chronic disease in the U.S. was an iceberg, then we are in the U.S., the Titanic. Till next time. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldkamikin. For a brief reminder of something I completely forget to do at the end of every episode. You've heard me talk long enough and many different episodes, but what I would love you to do, and many of you have already done this, I just want to reinforce this particular behavior, which is to send me your questions. Send me your questions and anything you have about keto. If there's something that I don't know, I will look it up. And if it's something that intrigues me, I will probably make an episode, uh, a podcast about that particular topic. So what you need to do is to send me your questions at drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. So that's D-R-G-O-L-D-K-A-M-P at K-E-T-O-N-A-T-U-R-O. P-A-T-H.com, Dr. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Feel free to join our Facebook group, which is also ketonaturopath.com. That's been growing lately. You also have to answer a questionnaire should you cho- choose to join. And I don't ask for your email. I ask that you follow our terms. I try to avoid uh, advertising and uh, the obvious interruptions of a, just a good Facebook group. So hope to see you at one place or other. Please send me your questions. And uh, look forward to talking to you and getting to know you. Take care.